Now, as Jim shared, my wife Sarah and I have had the uh, privilege of living and serving in Thousand Oaks for the past eight or so years, and uh, we feel incredibly blessed to live here, to worship here, to serve here. And uh, my church, Living Oaks, is just an incredible, warm fellowship of believers, as is Bethany. And it's a privilege to be with you all tonight and share God's word with you all tonight. If you've lived in town for any length of time, you would probably agree with me that we have and enjoy some of the best beaches and weather, not just in the country, but I think in the entire world. Would you agree? So on our day off, my wife and I, we like to travel through the canyon and take a a drive along the coast, um, not only for the beautiful views, but also for the breakfast burritos that are quite nice in Southern California. And I just want to do you a favor and tell you that if you're ever in Malibu, please go to Lily's and get a breakfast burrito. It is incredible. Uh, one time on our day off, my, my wife and I brought the kids with us. We have two kids, Naomi and Jesse, and we decided to stop off along the PCH at Dan Blocker Beach. It's right where the sand kind of comes up next to the PCH. And we got out of the car with the kids and with the uh, sun on our skin and the warmth of the sand under our feet, we just acknowledged for a moment how clear the sky was and how blue the water was, how incredible God's creation was that day. And since our daughter's three turning four, we took just a moment to try to explain to her the wonder and the beauty of God's creation, and in particular, the Pacific Ocean. And so just imagine me with my four-year-old trying to explain all of the life that teems under the surface of the water. And I tried to explain to her how the Pacific Ocean is the largest and deepest body of water on planet Earth. And in that moment, we were just considering the the grandeur of God's creation. And even though we've plumbed the depths of the ocean, we found the deepest known point, I don't think we'll ever fully be able to explore everything that's under there. And from our vantage point that day in Malibu, we looked out at the water, at the ocean, and it seemed to us, as we look at the horizon, that it was boundless. It was beyond measure. And as we think about Psalm 34 this morning and our series on Sunday evenings of the attributes of God, I think in a far more great and glorious way, we will never be able to plumb the depths or mine the riches of the character and nature of God. I am thrilled that we read together Psalm 145 this evening, and I'll remind you of verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And I love how as you study God and his word, and you study the attributes of God in particular, you learn that at one and the same time, God is both knowable and incomprehensible. He's knowable in that he has sufficiently shared himself through his word, and we can understand who he is, his character and his likeness. And yet, He's incomprehensible. None of us will ever be able to fully understand the mind of God. And yet, it motivates us, doesn't it? We want to know Him more. We want to understand Him more. We want to study His Word more and see if we can grasp the goodness and the greatness and the glory of our Heavenly Father. And I love what one author A.W. Tozer says about the study of God's attributes. He says the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them the undimmed and undiminished noble concept of God. When Pastor Paul shared that you guys were studying God's attributes on Sunday evenings, I was delighted and overjoyed to receive an invitation to open God's Word with you all and to study yet another attribute. In your evening service, I understand that you've 
studied the holiness of God. You've seen the wrath of God. You've seen the omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence of God. And last Sunday evening, the love of God. And I have the privilege of continuing that series and that study with another attribute, the goodness of God. In Psalm 34, the focus of our study together this evening, we'll see how we're called to do three things. To exalt God for his goodness, to experience God through his goodness, and to emulate God and his goodness. So please listen to the reading of the word of God. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 14. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you for the incredible privilege we have once again this evening to turn our attention to your precious word. We thank you that you have sufficiently revealed yourself to us through scripture so that we might know you and love you for who you are. I pray that as we continue this series and expand our understanding of your greatness, your glory, that this evening we would add to our understanding your goodness, that we would be able to grasp what it means, God, that you are good toward your creation, that you are good toward your people, that you have been good to your people and you continue to be good to your people even now. Father, we pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds to help us grasp the divine being, to know more of who you are and how your goodness culminates in the demonstration of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Father, we thank you that you saw fit to look on him and punish him for us. And as we think of David and all that he experienced here in this psalm, would we remember all the while Christ and his goodness to us. Father, we love you and we commit this time to you. We pray all these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll begin our study in the first few verses of this psalm, verses 1, 2, and 3, and consider how that you and I are called to exalt God for His goodness. Now, Psalm 34, for many of us, is a familiar psalm. It's a poetic psalm, but it's also what's considered an acrostic psalm, and a historical psalm. It's an acrostic psalm because each verse begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which would have been a mnemonic device that the people of Israel would have used to memorize this psalm for personal devotion, but also to sing this psalm in corporate worship, much like the setting this evening. Now, it's also a historic psalm because it contains a title, 
an inscription. If you look, we didn't read it, but we will together now. At the beginning of the psalm, it's locating this poem within the history of Israel, but also within the life of David. So turn your attention with me before verse 1, where the Psalter says, A psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, if you're familiar with the historical books of the biblical narrative, First and Second Samuel in particular, you'll remember that at one time, Samuel was the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. He was called by God to lead them as a prophet, and the people quickly soon after demanded a king. And we see that they selected and anointed a man by the name of Saul. And you'll remember that Saul was a competent military leader, but it turns out that he became very quickly a disobedient spiritual leader of the nation. It's actually the fact that he grew jealous of David, who was later selected and anointed as king of Israel, and Saul sought to take David's life. And while most of us think of David as a good man, we remember him uh, for being called a man after God's own heart. The context of this psalm reminds us that while David, yes, was a good exemplary individual, he was also a flawed individual. We see that he fled from Saul because he was afraid of Saul, and along the way he made a series of compromises and told a series of lies in order to preserve and protect his own life. And we see that out of fear and exhaustion, he fabricated a story, didn't he, to the priest of Nob to steal the the bread. And so he's fabricating a story to the priest of Nob, which later led Saul, king of Israel at the time, to actually order the murder of not just the priests of Nob, but the people of Nob, the entire city. And so David, running, trying to protect and preserve his life, begins a series of of compromises, begins telling a series of lies that would have a consequential effect, not just for him, but for the people of Israel. And then later we see in 1 Samuel that he continues on and he feigns madness. He comes before the king of Gath, and he's terrified. And so he feigns madness, and he begins drooling all over himself and making a fool of himself to the point where the king of Gath sends him on his way. He escapes, and he runs for his life. And that is the context of this psalm. It adds a little bit of color, doesn't it? When we read Psalm 34, when we consider what it means that God is good, we find King David, who would become King David in a moment of exhaustion, a moment of fear, a moment of terror, a moment of disobedience, a moment of rebellion, a moment of shame. He should have been the king of Israel, but he was hiding and living in a cave. And for King David, this was a time in his life characterized by adversity and affliction, sorrow, and and sadness, fear, and, and failure, hardship, and humiliation, and regret. But it's when we turn to Psalm 34, verse 1, that we see that all of that led David to a moment of repentance. And that's when we see the beauty of what he declares concerning the goodness of God in this psalm. You see, he was given a moment of clarity, a moment of hope. He realized that even in his darkness, even in his despair, God had never left him and God had never forsaken him. He recognizes that the Lord had been near to him and good to him. So in verse 1 of Psalm 34, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. He goes on and says, his praise shall continually be In my mouth, and what I want you to notice about David's praise in this psalm is its constancy. You see, David's moment in the caves of Adullam at one point was his lowest point, but 
In light of this psalm, it quickly became his highest point because he recognized in that cave, in that moment, that Yahweh, the covenant name of the God of his fathers, deserves praise at all times and in all circumstances, even when our circumstances aren't good. Because as we'll see this evening, God is good. In verse 1, when he says that he will praise God at all times, I think in our modern vernacular, it would sound something like this. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And so we see David in a moment of clarity and hope and and repentance come before God, express his, his joy and adoration over God's goodness and loving kindness. And from David's perspective, God's goodness not only warrants continual praise, but as we see in this psalm, corporate praise. What we, the church, have gathered together tonight to do is to exalt the goodness and glory of God together. And in verses 2 and 3 of the psalm, here's what David does. He calls out to the humble. He says, let the humble hear and be glad. The humble, as we know, defined by Scripture, are those that understand the gravity of their sin. They are poor in spirit. They have experienced the weight of suffering. They know similar hardships that David experienced the moment he wrote this psalm. He calls out to the humble. He calls out to those who understand their depravity, their fallenness, their sinfulness, their despair, and their need for hope, their need for God. And he calls out to them and he invites them to join him in recognizing and declaring the goodness of God. Now, the combination of the verbs in verses 2 and 3, just look at them with me. He says, my soul makes its boast. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And you pair that with the prepositional phrase with me and the adverb together and it makes the picture of this psalm crystal clear, doesn't it? Corporate worship. The gathering of God's people to declare his goodness and loving kindness displayed here to David through God's providential care, but displayed to you and I through Christ and his work on the cross. Stephen Charnock, a Puritan pastor of the early 17th century, said this about corporate worship. It is impossible to honor God as we ought unless we know him as he is. It is impossible to honor God as we ought unless we know Him as He is. And despite David's sin and failure, he knew God for who He was and he knew Yahweh for who He is. He knew that one and the same time, Yahweh deserves glory from His people because Yahweh is good to his people. And even in that moment of despair, after all of his sin and his failure, he recognizes that God is still worthy of worship because of the goodness he has displayed toward his people. And as we contemplate and consider the goodness of God together, I want to offer a definition or two that would hopefully elevate and purify our concept of God, that we might know him as he is so that we can honor him as we ought. One definition of the goodness of God, the theme of this psalm, is that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. And he is the final standard of goodness. All that God is and does is worthy of approval and he is the final standard of goodness, which really emphasizes his moral purity and his worth and beauty. God is holy and majestic and perfectly pure. He is the final standard of everything good. And another definition of the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. 
And that really emphasizes his relational kindness and his gracious disposition toward his people. So at one and the same time, to say that God is good is to say that he is morally pure and relationally kind. He is the final standard of everything that is right. And he relates to his people with grace and kindness. This is the goodness of God. This is the God who we worship, and this is the God that David exalts in this psalm. So really, we see this invitation from the Psalter, an invitation from David to exalt God for his goodness. Now, I'd I'd like to turn your attention to verses 4 through 10 and consider what it means and what it looks like to experience God through his goodness. And I think we see here in just the first few verses, four through seven, that we experience the goodness of God and how he answers our prayers. Talked a lot about your prayer ministry this evening and what a privilege it is to go before the throne of grace to receive help in our time of need. And we see God's goodness on full display when he takes the time to listen to his creation and answer our prayers. Now, given the historical background and literary context of this psalm, it's no wonder that David says what he says and prays what he prays in verses 4 through 7. In fact, these verses give us, like so many psalms give us, a window into the state of David's heart and into the state of David's mind. You see, the Psalter is this incredible prayer book of the Bible that gives us insight and wisdom into who God's people are and what they experience as they give expressions about their relationship with Yahweh. And Psalm 34 is no different. These words demonstrate the honesty that David had before God and the intimacy that David had before God. And I want you to notice the humility and candor in his requests. The humility and the candor in his request as he comes before God and pens this psalm. In verse 4, he's seeking deliverance from his fears. Now this is most likely in reference to his his flight from Saul. I mean, he's, he's murderously looking to end his life. And so the fear that David's expressing is most likely the fear of his flight from Saul. And then we go on to verse 5. And we see that he's seeking and really commending the fact that Yahweh provides freedom from shame. And remember, just in the few moments before he penned this psalm, David became responsible for the murder of an entire city of people. He had dishonored God. He had made up stories and lies to protect his own life. And He must have been filled with shame at this moment. And so his prayer in this psalm becomes one of asking for deliverance from fear, but also freedom from his shame. Then in verse 6, we see that he's seeking salvation from his troubles. I think Psalm 34 and David's experience in this time in his life and in the timeline of the nation of Israel, we can really relate to what David is going through. The pain, the despair, the difficulty that he went through is expressed as he asks God to to deliver him. And then verse 7, almost forming an inclusio, it says that he seeks deliverance from his fears again. And so while David acknowledges his fear and failure before God as he pens these verses, he also acknowledges the goodness and kindness of God as he pens these verses. Most notably, if you look at verse 4, where he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. You see, the doctrine of the goodness of God is most vividly seen in how he listens to insignificant and irreverent creatures like you and me. And for no other reason than his own goodness and glory, he attends to our needs and he answers our prayers. 
There is no reason that the God of the universe should bend his ear to listen to you and to me. And yet David, in one of his darkest moments, knew that God bent his ear to listen to him. And for you and I today, as members of the new covenant, you know that the doctrine of the goodness of God and how God relates to us as his people and answers our prayers is not exclusive to the Old Testament, is it? But it's a prevalent theme throughout the New Testament as well. In fact, you might remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He famously said in Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find knock, and it will be opened to you. Those are invitations from the Lord Jesus himself to ask, to seek, to knock, and we will be answered. And then in Matthew 7, if you remember the context, he goes on to describe the relationship between a father and a son. And he goes on in in Matthew 7, verse 8, and likening that relationship, he says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. You see, Jesus' point is pretty plain and simple that parents generally know how to meet the needs of their children. I mentioned I have a daughter who will be turning four next month. And when she is running around our church campus, which she does quite often, and she takes a tumble and a spill out front, and he scra- she scrapes her knee or her elbow or her nose as her father, I immediately know exactly what she needs. A frozen princess band-aid for her boo-boo. <laughs> I mean, I'm her dad. I, I've raised her. I've changed her diapers. I, I know her as my child and what she needs even before she asks. I see the tears welling up in her eyes. I see the scrape on her knee. And I know she needs a Band-Aid. And not just any Band-Aid, but a frozen princess Band-Aid. Or my son. He's 17 months today. And when he... He's not yet walking, actually. But when he's on his knees, looking up at Dada, making this motion with his hands, I know exactly what my son is looking for. He wants a hug from his dad. He just wants to be coddled and nurtured and cared for and and, and given a hug by his father. I mean, Jesus is just recognizing that as human beings, as parents with children, we know how to take care of our own. And then look at the shocking statement he says. Sorry, it's not before you, but if you're in Matthew 7, verse 11, this is what he says. If you then who are evil, ouch, If you then who are evil, I mean, Jesus knows the depravity of man. He knows our sinfulness and our fallenness. He knows that we are evil. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, Jesus himself is appealing to the goodness of God. And because God is a good God, he knows the needs of his children and he meets the needs of his children. And that's exactly what we see him doing here with David. He hears David's prayer. He inclines his ear to David's prayer. David in these verses tell us that he answered his prayer. And that's exactly what God does in our lives. Because He is good, He is the final standard of everything that is righteous and pure. He knows exactly what we need, not necessarily what we want or what we ask for, but what we truly need. And in His goodness and loving kindness toward us as His children, He gives us exactly what we need. And then I find it so interesting in this passage where David is just honestly and openly expressing his fear and his shame and his worry in this moment of despair. And he calls upon God and and God answers. And what I find so incredible is verse 7. Verse 7 of Psalm 34. Now, let me share that I don't think that we have a 
enough time this evening to do a proper study in angelology and understand who the angel of the Lord is. But I will argue, and you can ask Pastor Paul when he returns, I will argue that verse 7 is nothing short of a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament, meaning that Jesus himself encamped around David, delivering him from his enemies. Read verse 7 with me. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord, whenever you see him appear in Scripture, shares attributes with God because I believe he is God. He is a manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament and came alongside David to protect him and care for him. This is just an incredible glimpse of the goodness of God and how he answers our prayer. God is good. He's good to his people. He does good to his people. And as A.W. Tozer says in his chapter on God's goodness, the whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all believe that we dwell under a friendly sky. And the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. See, the reality of the goodness of God is that He loves us and desires a relationship with us. He has made that relationship possible through the death of His Son in our place. And He invites us to come through faith and become His children and become His friends and receive the blessing and the benefit of having God defend us and protect us. This is the goodness of God. It's not just seen in how He answers our prayers, but as David continues in this psalm, it's seen in how he satisfies our hearts. And I'd like to turn your attention to verses 8 through 10. Now, commenting on this passage, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, we know him as the prince of preachers. He says that the first half of this psalm is a hymn. As we read it, we, we felt it's hymn-like nature that we've come into this place to exalt God, to magnify the Lord. And Spurgeon acknowledges that the first portion of this hymn, it, it really is a poetic psalm of worship. And, and then he goes on to say that the second half of this hymn is a sermon. The second half of this hymn is a sermon because David wants to teach us something. He wants to teach us something concerning the character and nature of God. And the sermon really begins at verse 8. And I'd like you to, to look there with me. When David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And what I find so interesting about those imperative verbs is that they are sensory commands, aren't they? David does not say, know that the Lord is good. David does not say, understand that the Lord is good. David does not say, study that the Lord is good. He does not say, comprehend that the Lord is good. Although God calls us to be good stewards of our mind and, and to mind the, the riches of Scripture, the verbs that he chooses in Psalm 34 Verse 8, when describing our relationship to God and our experience of His goodness, our taste and see. Taste and see. And knowing that 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, quotes Psalm 34, verse 8, I think I stand on good footing when I say that the Christian life is not merely an accumulation of facts but an experiential relationship with the God of the Bible. Now let me give you an example. It's one thing if I were to say that I've been told and I've heard that Bethany's receptionist, Barbara, makes the best chocolate chip oatmeal cookies in the entire world. 
Has anybody had her oatmeal chocolate chip cookies? You are all missing out. It's one thing to say that I've, I've heard and I've been told that Barbara's oatmeal chocolate chip cookies are incredible. It's another thing to say that I had lunch with Pastor Paul and Barbara, in her kindness and hospitality to a few other pastors, decided the evening before to make some oatmeal chocolate chip cookies at home and having tasted them in my mouth, I can tell you they are the best oatmeal chocolate chip cookies in the world. It's one thing to say, I've been told and I've heard that Bethany has the best view of the 4th of July fireworks in all of Thousand Oaks. Has anybody seen the fireworks from Bethany's campus? It's one thing to say that I've heard and I've been told that it's an incredible view of the fireworks. It's another thing to say that my wife and kids and I came out and camped out on Bethany's campus on the 4th of July and we saw with our own eyes that this church has the best view of the fireworks in all of Thousand Oaks. Now that one's a lie. I have not seen the fireworks from Bethany's campus. But you see what I'm getting at. There's a difference between saying I've heard or I've comprehended or I've been told. It's another thing to actually taste and to see. It's one thing to say, I've studied the goodness of God in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology or knowing this crowd, John MacArthur's Biblical Doctrine. It's another thing to say with David that in my deepest valley and in my darkest hour I have tasted and I have seen the goodness of God because he never left me he never forsake me but he was with me and he loves me there is a complete difference here that David is helping us understand between an accumulation of facts and an experiential relationship with the God of the Bible. And that is exactly David's desire for you and for me to taste and see that God is good. Now in verses 9 and 10, that's really the call, the invitation from David to you and I to have this experiential relationship with God as our Father, to taste and see and know that He's good. And then in verses 9 and 10, he claims that those who fear the Lord have no lack. And then he says that they lack no good thing. Those that taste and see that God is good, and those that fear the Lord, they have no lack and they lack no good thing. And then in order to illustrate his point, what does David do? He compares the want and hunger of young lions to the satisfaction and contentment of God's children. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've never been on a safari. But I do have a young lion at home. His name is Jesse. He is 17 months old. And when he wakes up, if we don't feed him, within the first few minutes of being awake, he will let us know just how hungry he is with grunts and growls so loud that you too would think he's a young lion. I mean, he just expresses his hunger, his want, his longing, his need to satiate his stomach's craving. And neat. And so David, actually having seen lions, observes that the youngest lions are the ones that have the strongest want, the strongest longing, the strongest need. And he compares the want and the longing of a young lion to the child of God. And these two illustrations are actually supposed to stand in stark contrast to one another, aren't they? Because the young lion has extreme want and extreme need, but the child of God has no want and no need because God has satisfied their hearts. 
Because in His goodness, He answers our prayers. And in His goodness, He satisfies our hearts. And while I will assume that this is a church that is full of healthy believers whose lives are rooted and grounded in God's Word, I want to invite you, as David does, that if you have been wanting, if you have been longing, if you have been looking for something in this world to satisfy that craving, I want to invite you to come, to join me, to join David, and taste and see that God is good. Throughout this psalm, we see the theme of God's goodness over and over again. We see his invitation to come and exalt God for his goodness and loving kindness toward us in our darkest and ugliest moments. We see David's invitation to experience God for his goodness. And then finally in verses 11 through 14, we see that David calls us to emulate God, to emulate his goodness. In verse 11, David continues the sermonic, the didactic tone of this psalm And he says, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is a common theme throughout Scripture, is it not? It appears mostly in wisdom, poetic literature, mainly the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. And you and I are familiar that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And so David is commending to you and to I, to the people of God, that we would fear him. And I find that that is such an interesting call to God's people to fear God in the context of a psalm that is focused on God's goodness and loving kindness. And if you sense a tension in David's words, I believe that's because there is a tension in David's words. Because at one and the same time, we are reverent toward God in His greatness. And yet we are invited to enjoy an intimacy, and a closeness with God because of His goodness. I'll quote Tozer one more time when he says, The greatness of God rouses fear within us, but His goodness encourages us to not be afraid. And then he says, To fear and to not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. As children of God, as followers of Christ, we join with David in expressing the fact that at one and the same time, we fear and we are not afraid. We fear God out of reverence and respect for His holiness and His majesty and His beauty and His glory, and yet we're not afraid because He's our Father and He's a good Father. We see as Psalm 34 continues to instruct us in a life of goodness and invites us and calls us to emulate God in His goodness. I think it's particularly helpful to keep in mind the words of Peter. In fact, Peter quotes Psalm 34 so frequently that it's been said that Peter wrote his first epistle with Psalm 34 on his mind, if not on his desk. And so Peter's writing his first epistle to Christians who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And Peter is recalling and commending to God's people the truths contained here in Psalm 34. In fact, Peter quotes verses 12, 13, and 14 almost verbatim in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And I believe the point is that both David and Peter, a man under the old covenant and a man under the new covenant, both David and Peter envision the following actions as not only the path to enjoying God's goodness, but the prescription for extending God's goodness to the world around us. And that path or prescription has four steps in these verses. He says to speak truth to shun evil, to show good, and to seek peace. To speak truth, to shun evil, 
to do good and to seek peace. And the first imperative command is focused on our words in verse 13 of Psalm 34. And the final three are focused on our actions in verse 14. If you turn your attention to verse 13, David says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And that's without question referring to the moral goodness and uprightness of God's character and nature. He's commending to you and to I to be people of integrity, people of character, people who speak the truth because God is a God of truth. David is calling upon the character and nature of God and commending the same actions to followers of Yahweh. And if God is honest and truthful, then we're called to be honest and truthful and everything we do, and everything we say. And then in verse 14, and we'll conclude our study together in this verse. David says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And I think David is trying to help us understand that we're not just called to emulate God and His goodness with our words, but we're called to emulate God and His goodness with our lives. Both the things that we say and the things that we do should be representative of our Heavenly Father and representative of His goodness. And so the first half of verse 14, it actually presents two sides of the same coin, doesn't it? He says, turn away from evil, one side, and do good, the other side. And this is a complimentary teaching of the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, when Paul says, abhor what is evil and what? Hold fast to what is good. You see, Paul in Romans and David in the Psalter is commending to us a life that is exemplary and patterned after God's moral goodness. And then he shifts his focus. I mentioned, and I argued really that God's goodness is both a moral quality and a relational quality. He's good and then he's the final standard of everything that's pure. But he's also good in that he's gracious and kind and merciful to his people. And that's exactly what David does when he shifts his focus in verse 14 from moral acts of goodness to relational acts of kindness. Verse 14, he says, seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. And I really believe this is a reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ, when He was on the cross, He died so that God might secure peace with His people. To reconcile a broken relationship and bring us back into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And He commends David in the Old Testament Paul in the New Testament, that we would model that same relational kindness, that we would be peacemakers, that we would be people who seek peace and pursue it. The wonder of the gospel is that God has sought peace and secured peace with his people through the death of his son and calls us as the redeemed people that we are to preserve and protect the unity of his church, of his body, of his beloved. And as you think about what it means and what it looks like to exalt God for His goodness in your life, to experience, to taste, and to see God's goodness in your life, and to emulate God and His goodness to those in your life, I pray that as a result of our evening study, as a result of this series, as a result of our look at the goodness and loving kindness of God, that you leave this evening more assured of His love for you and more acquainted of His kindness toward you as His child whom He dearly loves. And as we close, I can't think of a better way to end our time together than to finish reading Psalm 34. We only had time really to sufficiently make our way to verse 14 and I'd like to conclude just by reading the balance of the psalm, but what I want to do before we read is I want to observe with you. Verse 20. 
And as we read the close of this psalm, we're reminded of how God treats the righteous and how God treats the unrighteous. He is good and He commends goodness to His people. And those that walk in that goodness and righteousness, God loves and protects and cares for. And it, verse 20, it reminds us of the one who was perfectly good and perfectly righteous, whom God commends. Verse 20 says, He keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. And while in the immediate context of this psalm, it's talking about the righteous individual, God will protect and he will keep his bones. But what does Psalm 34 verse 20 remind you of? Jesus Christ on the cross, when the Roman soldiers came at the end of his crucifixion event, they came and they broke the bones of the criminal on the right and they broke the bones of the criminal on the left. And what did they do with Jesus? They didn't break his bones, did they? Because he had already died. A payment for the sins of the world. The perfect righteous one in our place. So I'd like to conclude as we read the close of Psalm 34. Starting in verse 15. David says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this evening for the incredible reminder of your goodness and your loving kindness toward us. Not just because that's who you are, but that's because it's always been a part of your plan to demonstrate your goodness and your glory to a chosen and redeemed people. And through the death of your Son in our place, we truly are able to join with David and say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, I pray that as we go back to our homes, as we return to our offices, as we enjoy the balance of summer break, I pray that we would leave this place reassured of your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, and your love. I pray that we would be compelled not just to learn more facts about you, but to experience you and know you. And Father, I pray that we would, in obedience to Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, emulate your goodness to those around us. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for our study. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your son. We love you because you first loved us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.